Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of war, mutilation, murder, and harm against minors. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. There are many ways to describe the British royal family. A tourist attraction, an antiquated historical item, the celebrity gossip engine that keeps on giving. However, there's one description you wouldn't expect. Illegitimate. But today's episode raises a stunning question. What if King Charles isn't the rightful King of England? What if he's just a distant cousin with great pocket squares? And meanwhile, some average Joe has a stronger royal lineage. Like the royal family, these questions date back centuries to the summer of 1483, when two princes were locked inside the Tower of London. That summer, they were the most important royals in the kingdom, but by fall, they'd vanished. And today, the only way to know for sure who the rightful King of England is, is to learn the fate of those two princes. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast. I'm Carter Roy. You can find us here every Wednesday. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. 
and all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover, to entertain these farewell-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. That's from the opening monologue of Shakespeare's Richard III. In the scene, the titular villain plots to steal his brother's throne through a series of calculated murders. The play cemented Richard III as one of English literature's most recognizable villains, with a cultural impact on the scale of Darth Vader or Hannibal Lecter. Ever since, He's been remembered as a jealous, calculating tyrant with a silver tongue and a warped mind. His most heinous crime is the subject of today's first conspiracy theory. Richard III ordered the murders of his nephews, Prince Edward and Prince Richard. Now, this is a unique theory because while it's technically unproven, many historians see it as the official version a version that involves medieval house wars, Machiavellian plans to steal the throne, and murder. And if that sounds like a season of Game of Thrones, it's not an accident. This theory revolves around the Wars of the Roses, a series of English civil wars that occurred in the mid to late 1400s. Author George R.R. R. Martin drew inspiration from the wars when writing the Game of Thrones books. But as complicated as they are, the Wars of the Roses can be boiled down to a feud between two noble families, the Yorks and the Lancasters, not to be confused with the Starks and the Lannisters. Though like the wolves and lions on Game of Thrones, each real-life family had a personal symbol. The Yorks carried a banner with the white rose, while the Lancasters used a red rose, hence the Wars of the Roses, red versus white. The fighting lasted roughly two decades before they finally declared a winner, King Edward IV, though Edward wasn't 100% popular. First, he was a York, which the few surviving Lancasters hated. Second, he had secretly married a widow Elizabeth Woodville. And worse, she was a member of the gentry, the social class beneath the nobility. In short, she wasn't qualified to be queen in anyone's eyes, except for her loving husbands. It was a fairy tale, until it wasn't. King Edward's brother George hated Elizabeth. He slandered her publicly, accusing her of using black magic to poison his wife. At one point, he even defected to the Lancaster's camp in protest of the marriage. Eventually, he returned to his brother's court, but he kept causing trouble. After George crossed the line one too many times, King Edward had his own brother executed. This was obviously upsetting for everyone, but it was probably the most upsetting for King Edward's other brother and heir apparent, Richard of Gloucester. Richard of Gloucester was described by one chronicler as small of stature, with a short face and unequal shoulders. Despite this, he was known as a formidable warrior. 
a reputation he earned many times over during the Wars of the Roses. He was also said to be fiercely loyal to his family. Richard already had cause to distrust the Queen, but with Prince George's death, he had a reason to hate her. And he was about to get another. Ever since Edward's ascension to the throne, Richard had been heir apparent. But in the fall of 1470, Elizabeth gave birth to her first son. They named him Edward after his father. Three years later, he took another step down the ladder when Elizabeth Woodville gave birth to another boy, Prince Richard of Shrewsbury. The couple also had several daughters, bringing up their total to 10 children. In short order, Gloucester had gone from heir apparent to third in line. Assuming the boys lived to adulthood and had children of their own, he would never be king. Or so everyone thought. Fast forward 13 years later to 1483. King Edward IV suddenly gets sick and dies, making his 12-year-old son, also named Edward, the new King of England. But only in name, not practice. Since Edward V was a minor, he'd need a regent to help him govern. And on his deathbed, King Edward IV had planned for that, designating his brother, Richard of Gloucester, as Lord Protector until Edward was ready to rule on his own. This was great news for Richard and terrible news for Elizabeth Woodville. Remember, Richard hated her and saw her as a threat. And it seems like Elizabeth had similar feelings toward her brother-in-law because she tried to keep her husband's death secret from him. She also tried to get physical custody of her son, Edward, who was currently miles away in the care of her brother, the second Earl Rivers. Seemingly, Elizabeth planned to put him on the throne without declaring Richard Lord Protector. When Richard got wind of this, he raced south capturing Elizabeth's brother and kidnapping her son. Earl Rivers was taken north to a town called Pontefract, where he would be given a quick show trial and beheaded nearly two months later. The gloves were off. The beheading proved the Duke was prepared to kill members of Elizabeth's family, and he now had custody of her son, who he locked up in the Tower of London. Now, just to clarify, this wasn't completely suspicious. Kings traditionally stayed in the tower while preparing for their coronation, but so did prisoners, and questions quickly arose about which one Edward V was. On the outside, Richard maintained all appearances of moving ahead with Prince Edward's coronation. The date was set for June 22nd, just under two months away. But the battle between the Queen and the Duke continued in the shadows. Elizabeth Woodville still had one chess piece left. Her youngest son, nine-year-old Prince Richard of Shrewsbury, was now second in line to the throne and still in her custody. While he wasn't as immediately critical as his older brother, he gave her some leverage against Richard of Gloucester. The queen took the nine-year-old prince and his sisters and fled to Westminster Abbey, where they claimed sanctuary. For weeks, the queen refused to leave the abbey, 
Eventually, Richard of Gloucester sent the Archbishop of Canterbury to persuade her to release her son. We can't say what eventually convinced her. Maybe she believed the Duke's promises that her sons would be safe, or maybe she felt she had no choice. But by June, Elizabeth Woodville surrendered her nine-year-old to the Archbishop's care. Prince Richard was taken to the Tower of London to join his older brother. And that's how the two princes wound up in the tower. Okay, here's where the conspiracy theory starts. Apparently, once the princes were both locked in the tower, rumors started spreading about their legitimacy. From Westminster Palace to the streets of London, whispers spread that Elizabeth Woodville's marriage to King Edward IV had never been legal. They alleged that before the king married her, he'd already been married to another woman. Allegedly, young Edward IV frequently promised marriage to beautiful noblewomen to lure them into bed. And remember, he did keep his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville's secret for a while before making it public, so it's possible the rumors were true. On the other hand, it's extremely convenient timing for Richard of Gloucester. If the two princes were illegitimate, they couldn't legally inherit the throne, which meant Richard would be the next king. We don't know if he started the rumors, but he certainly had a motive to. The rumors were so pervasive, Parliament had to step in. After an emergency meeting, they declared the two boys legal bastards, a la Jon Snow. But it gets stranger. Supposedly, Parliament begged Richard of Gloucester to take the throne. After a brief show of reluctance, which, I mean, come on, it had to be just for show, the Duke accepted. Richard of Gloucester was now Richard III. Now you're probably thinking, wait, this guy had the crown already. Why would he need to kill his nephews? Well, in a purely Machiavellian sense, as long as the boys were alive, there was a risk that their supporters would try to have them reinstated. Well, in fact, that's exactly what happened. Within months of his coronation, Elizabeth Woodville and her allies launched a brief doomed rebellion in Prince Edward's name. Richard caught wind of the plot and had it quashed, publicly executing its leader, Henry Stafford, the second Duke of Buckingham. Apparently, around this time, rumors also spread around England that Prince Edward was dead too, and both princes disappeared from the records. But the conspiracy theories didn't fully take shape until a couple decades later during the 16th century reign of Henry VIII. Ah, yes, the six wives guy. Now, during his reign, people recorded dozens of theories about how the princes were murdered. Quick warning, this next part is upsetting. It's all hypothetical and would have happened a long time ago, but still involves acts of violence against children. Feel free to skip forward a few minutes if you need. People said they were poisoned, run through with swords, and drowned in a cask of wine. One 16th century writer claimed they were locked in a chest and buried alive, while another said they were walled up inside the Tower of London and starved to death. 
Just about the only thing these versions agree on is that the murders were carried out on the orders of Richard III. One of the most famous accounts is written by Sir Thomas More. That's the same Sir Thomas More who was executed for opposing Henry VIII's split from the Catholic Church and later became a Catholic saint. After More died, an unfinished manuscript was found amongst his belongings devoted to the history of Richard III. While More was only seven when Richard III died, he's said to have gotten accounts from people who'd been around during Richard's reign, including a knight named James Tyrrell. One more Game of Thrones similarity, if you're counting, but back to history. Sir Tyrrell claimed to have first-hand knowledge of what happened to the princes because he arranged their murders himself. Moore recounted Tyrrell's alleged confession, which boils down to something like this. In the fall of 1483, Richard III was growing increasingly concerned about the princes still locked in the Tower of London. He feared that his enemies would rally around Prince Edward and try to put him in power. So rather than waiting for a revolution, he decided to nip the problem in the bud. As Tyrrell claimed, Richard turned to Sir Robert Brackenberry, the constable of the Tower of London. Brackenberry was loyal to Richard, but he refused to have any part in murdering children. As Alison Weir noted in her book, The Princes in the Tower, this led to one of the most comical scenes in Moore's manuscript. Richard III is sitting on his chamber pot, complaining about Brackenberry to a page boy, picture that if you will, he wonders aloud if there's anyone in the kingdom he can really trust to get rid of these princes, at which point the page helpfully says he knows the perfect man for the job, a knight eager to climb the social ladder with none of Brackenberry's moral qualms, James Tyrrell. According to Moore, Richard summoned Tyrrell, who was all too happy to help. He set off the next day with a letter for Brackenberry instructing him to hand over the keys to the tower to one of Richard's associates. This time, the constable obliged. Tyrrell enlisted the help of two servants, Miles Forrest and John Dighton. That night, the men crept into the chamber where the princes were sleeping. They thrust pillows over the boys' faces, holding them down until they went still. After that, the assassins buried the children beneath a stairwell in the tower. Later, however, the king had them moved to an unknown location. That's the story, according to Sir Thomas More. His version of events eventually became the basis for Shakespeare's play, and that's the one historians have taken as more or less true for the last five centuries. But there are problems with More's account. Yes, James Tyrrell confessed to murder, but according to at least one historian, he did so under torture, so the confession may not be true. And even if it is, key details may have been muddled, because Moore's manuscript is full of basic errors, like incorrect dates and ages. This has led some people, like Matthew Lewis, author of The Survival of the Princes in the Tower, to suggest that Moore was writing allegorically, 
and the manuscript was never meant to be taken as literal history. And remember, the manuscript was never actually completed. It's possible Moore lost confidence in his version of events and abandoned the work. And that brings us to the real problem with all of the accounts implicating King Richard III. Most of them were written years, if not decades, after the murders would have taken place. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean the Tudor-era chroniclers were wrong. It just means that we may not be able to take their accounts at face value. Consider this. Shakespeare's Richard III has a hunchback, a severe limp, and a shriveled arm. Shakespeare didn't invent this idea. It's consistent with historical descriptions of the king. And for centuries, no one could contest those reports because they couldn't locate Richard's grave. But in 2012, an investigative team of historians and archaeologists finally found his remains, buried beneath a parking lot in Leicester, England. The team proved it was Richard III by comparing DNA from his remains to a living descendant. But that wasn't the end of it. They also analyzed the form of his skeleton. While Richard III suffered from scoliosis, the curve in his spine probably wasn't even visible through clothes. So, Shakespeare's accusation that Richard III was a poisonous, bunch-backed toad was extremely overblown. When you consider that Richard was ousted in a rebellion, it becomes a clear case of history being written by the victors. Which begs the question, what other parts of his legacy have been exaggerated? Did he murder his nephews like so many historians assumed? Or was Richard III the victim of one of history's biggest frame-ups? Because the best proof that Richard III didn't kill the two princes is evidence that someone else did. Coming up, the other suspects accused of murdering the two princes. Now, back to the story. Since 1483, the disappearance of King Edward IV's sons has been an unanswered mystery. And yet... Most experts have come to the same conclusion. The princes were probably executed on the orders of Richard III. It's a logical, straightforward explanation. And yet there are problems, like the alleged motive. Richard III supposedly killed the princes to prevent uprisings. He believed that as long as the boys were alive, his enemies would work to put them back into power. But if that was really his motive, he needed people to know the princes were dead and not to challenge his rule. Now, you could argue that he was afraid of what people would think. Now, we can't imagine he'd embrace the nickname change from Richard the Crookback to Richard the Child Killer. But leaving it to the rumor mill meant his citizens could hate him for murdering the princes, but still hold out hope that they could one day return and claim the throne. It was the worst of both worlds. Though, maybe Richard didn't have time to craft a statement, because just a few years into his own reign, he died in battle. Modern analysis of Richard III's remains suggests that his death was brutal and painful. 
He was stabbed in the jaw, the cheek, the top of his head, and the base of the skull. A total of 11 injuries with nine to the head alone. It's likely he was stabbed to death by multiple soldiers during the Battle of Bosworth, where Henry Tudor challenged him for the crown. Henry won and became Henry VII. But here's where it gets weird. Henry never directly addressed the prince's murders either. The closest he ever got was accusing Richard III of shedding infant's blood. This has been read as a veiled allusion to the prince's, but as historian John Ashdown Hill posits in his book, The Mythology of the Princes in the Tower, if Henry Tudor really wanted people to hate his predecessor, why not come out and say he killed two children? Instead, Henry VII seemed to want everyone to forget about it. This caginess points to conspiracy theory number two. The princes were murdered by Henry Tudor's mother, Lady Margaret Beaufort. Margaret Beaufort's story is fascinating. She was a go-getter who changed the course of British history. Her descendants include some of the most impactful British monarchs, and you can actually connect her bloodline all the way to the current royal family. But she started as a distant cousin from the family who'd lost the crown, the Lancasters. Through clever politicking and power of will, Margaret maneuvered her son into the prime position, leapfrogging over a host of Lancaster relatives with better claims. She rallied them all behind her son, Henry Tudor. She convinced everyone he could be king, and she organized the rebellion that defeated Richard III. The critical final step in Margaret's plan was a royal marriage between Henry Tudor and Princess Elizabeth of York, the sister of the two princes, who, by modern standards, actually had the best claim to the throne out of anyone. See, Elizabeth was the oldest daughter of Edward IV. If she'd been born male, she would have been his heir. But as a woman, she was passed over for her younger brothers than her uncle. However, once Richard III died and the princes were missing, there were no more male Yorks left, giving Elizabeth of York the strongest claim. But she wasn't done battling sexism. Whoever Elizabeth married would be king, full stop. So by agreeing to marry Henry Tudor, she effectively transferred her divine right to rule to him, Margaret Beaufort's son. But there was a hitch. Remember, Parliament had declared the two princes illegitimate based on accusations of bigamy. That meant their older sister, Elizabeth of York, was also illegitimate. So before he married her, Henry Tudor nullified that ruling. He reinstated the entire York family's titles and holdings, technically making 12-year-old Prince Edward V the rightful king again. Lucky for Henry and his mother Margaret, the prince was nowhere to be found. And there's the motive. Margaret Beaufort's plan to get her son in power hinged on the two princes being removed from the equation. She could only unify the two warring families 
and bring glory to her name if the two young boys were dead. Margaret was clearly a capable woman, but even so, it's not clear how she would have gotten access to the tower to murder the boys, and there aren't accounts of her committing the crime or persuading someone else to do it. However, this brings us to one more possible suspect, someone truly interesting. Imagine this, you're Henry Tudor. You've just defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth and claimed the throne of England. You arrive in London to throngs of adoring subjects. You enter the Tower of London to prepare for your coronation and find out there are two boys living there. The two princes, Richard and Edward, had been there all this time. And now you've got a problem. Because if anyone finds out Prince Edward is still alive, they'll make him king. And you'll have conquered England for nothing. So rather than informing your fiancé that her brothers are alive, you conquer your final obstacle. That's right. Our final murder suspect is King Henry VII. He had the same motive as his mother, but unlike her, he seemingly had an opportunity to execute the princes. And then he and his family, who stayed in power for decades, allowed everyone to think Richard III killed them. It's as twisted as a Game of Thrones plotline. But still, it hinges on the princes staying in the Tower of London for two whole years, without anyone knowing. There's no surviving evidence the princes were in the tower after the summer of 1483. And in a massive fortress, it's likely someone would have noticed something, unless there was another cover-up afoot. Like if the princes weren't murdered at all. Coming up, this story goes from Game of Thrones to the Da Vinci Code. Now, back to the story. There's no shortage of people who might have killed the two princes, but there is another possibility, one that might explain the issues plaguing the case for centuries. The princes weren't murdered at all. Which brings me to our final conspiracy theory. One or both of the princes were smuggled out of the tower alive, possibly even on Richard III's orders, given aliases, and they live the rest of their lives in anonymity. This theory dates back to at least the Tudor dynasty, according to author Matthew Lewis. In his book, The Survival of the Princes in the Tower, he documented that around 1513, the royal chronicler Polydor Virgil wrote, quote, It was generally reported and believed that the sons of Edward IV were still alive, having been conveyed secretly away and obscurely concealed in some distant region. A Dutch chronicler from 1500 pointed a finger at Henry Stafford, the second Duke of Buckingham. He alleged Buckingham murdered one of the princes, but had the other taken out of the country. For a long time, this possibility was largely ignored, 
But recently, authors like Matthew Lewis have revisited the evidence. In his book, Lewis provides some arguments that support an attempt to extract the princes from the tower. Reading between the lines of some letters, it may even have been successful. But if the princes did escape, you'd think they'd eventually come forward to claim their inheritance. At 12 and 9, they'd clearly remember their lives as royalty. The comfort, the wealth, the power, not something you'd forget. Well, sure enough, someone did come forward. In 1491, a young man arrived on the shores of Cork, Ireland, dressed in unusually fine clothes and using the title Richard of England. He claimed to be the younger of the two princes, who'd spent the last decade in hiding in mainland Europe. He also said that while he'd been spared, his older brother Edward had been murdered in the tower long ago, which meant that he was now the rightful king of England. The story probably would have been ignored if everyone hadn't agreed that the man bore a striking resemblance to the real Prince Richard. He was the same age, around 18 years old. He even convinced Richard's aunt, the Duchess of Burgundy, to back his claim. Then this so-called Richard of England began traveling around Europe, visiting various royal courts, and drumming up support for his claim to the English throne. He was backed by several royals, including the King of France and the Holy Roman Emperor. When King Henry VII refused to acknowledge Richard's claim, it sparked international conflict. King Henry insisted that the young man was an imposter and demanded that he be handed over to England to stand trial for treason. Instead, Richard invaded. In 1497, he landed in England with a sizable military force. But when King Henry VII's army came to meet him, Richard panicked and fled to an abbey where he was soon captured. There, the young man gave a detailed confession, admitting to being an imposter. He said his real name was Perkin Warbeck and that he'd been working for a merchant when Irish rebels noticed his similarity to the missing York princes. They came up with a plan for Warbeck to impersonate Prince Richard and convinced him to go along with it. King Henry was satisfied with the confession and had the young man imprisoned in the Tower of London. He tried to escape twice, actually, and after the second time was executed for treason. For a long time, most experts accepted that Warbeck was an imposter, but recently some have begun to challenge this assumption. In his book, author Matthew Lewis points out a number of suspicious details. The young man made his confession under duress after being beaten so badly that his face was unrecognizable. And even after that, no records exist that show he was allowed to meet Queen Elizabeth of York, Prince Richard's sister. Elizabeth and Richard grew up together, and she would have been able to see through a fraud. So why didn't her husband enlist her in quashing this rebellion? Well, maybe because he worried he was facing the real prince. 
Even if Perkin Warbeck was an imposter with an incredible name, his story can still be used as evidence the princess survived. In his book, Matthew Lewis argues that Perkin never would have gotten so many powerful people to believe him if the prince's fate was a settled question. Clearly, plenty of people were willing to believe they had escaped the tower alive. At least until 1674, when a new discovery threw a wrench in the theory. While renovating the Tower of London, a team of workmen unearthed a large wooden chest buried beneath the stairwell of the White Tower. Inside, they found the skeletons of two children. This find matched the description from Thomas More's manuscript. And when they allegedly found scraps of regal velvet clothes amid the bones, the conclusion was obvious, at least to everyone in the 1600s. The skeletons belonged to the two princes. Everyone celebrated. The mystery was solved. Later, King Charles II had the remains moved to a large urn in Westminster Abbey, they're still there today, under a Latin plaque that translates to, quote, Here lie the relics of Edward V, King of England and Richard, Duke of York, these brothers being confined in the Tower of London, and there stifled with pillows, were privately and meanly buried by the order of their perfidious uncle, Richard the Usurper. And yet, we can't be positive those remains are the princes. Historian and author John Ashdown Hill raises a couple of questions. These are not the only skeletons that have been found at the Tower of London, not even the only skeletons of children. And furthermore, the depth at which the remains were found, 10 feet underground, suggests that they may be much older than the stairwell. Now, hypothetically, this mystery can be solved with modern forensics. Testing could determine the age of the bones and maybe even their DNA, just like in the case of Richard III. However, the remains have only been examined once, in 1933. At the time, the archivists concluded that the skeletons roughly matched the ages of the missing princes. However, due to the condition of the bones, they were not able to determine their sex. Since then, there have been requests for the skeletons to be submitted to modern forensic evaluation, all of which were rejected. In 2013, The Guardian exposed correspondence proving that the Church of England and the late Queen Elizabeth II repeatedly refused requests to have the remains tested. Supposedly, they feared it would lead to countless other royal tombs being opened, and they doubted whether the tests would actually resolve the question of who killed the princes. In response to the report, a spokesperson for Westminster Abbey told The Guardian their position is that the remains of the two children shouldn't be disturbed. However, in the past, King Charles III has reportedly shown interest in allowing the testing to go ahead, so it's possible that scientific answers may be just around the corner. And in the meantime, historians continue scouring historical records for new clues. Philippa Langley, 
who commissioned the excavation and discovery of the remains of Richard III, now leads a group called the Missing Princes Project. And they recently pieced together a new theory. It goes like this. In the late summer of 1483, Elizabeth Woodville and her nine-year-old son, Prince Richard, had found sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. As long as they stayed there, they were under the protection of the church. But they were also a threat to King Richard III's reign. So he offered them a deal. None of the royal children would be harmed if the two princes were secretly moved out of London, given aliases, and allowed to live out the rest of their lives in anonymity. Neither could ever be king, but they would be safe and alive. According to this theory, Elizabeth and her sons struck the deal. The princes were spirited away, given new names, and lived out their lives quietly. Happily, we hope. And there's even evidence they kept in touch with their mom and sisters. In their research, the Missing Princes Project narrowed in on a church in the remote county of Devon, in England's southwest corner. The 15th century structure stands on a ridge, its bell tower visible for miles around. Inside, you'll find the tomb of a man named John Evans. And we don't know much about him, except that he showed up suddenly around the time the princes disappeared and was given control of a territory that was used for deer hunting. However, there's something odd about John Evans' tomb. His name is misspelled. The N in Evans, E-V-A-N-S, has been left off so that it reads E-V-A-S. Researchers with the Missing Princes Project think it's a hidden message. The E-V could stand for Edward V, the official title of Prince Edward. V isn't meant as a letter, but the Roman numeral designating him as the fifth of his name. Meanwhile, the A-S comes from a Latin phrase, asa, meaning in sanctuary. Just below the name, the word king is carved upside down. And surrounding the tomb, symbols of the York family, like the roses dotting the floor tiles throughout the church. Up above in the ceiling, there's a strange carving of a Tudor woman with a snake coiling from her mouth. The researchers proposed it's an insult to Margaret Beaufort, who installed her son Henry Tudor on the throne that would have belonged to Edward V. And that's not all. Near the tomb, there's a carved statue of John Evans. It faces a large stained glass window, which bears an indisputable image of Prince Edward V. The project's head researcher, John Dyke, pointed out how odd this is in an interview with The Telegraph. Dyke says it's strange to find an image of Edward V anywhere, since... He never actually reigned. There are only two other known stained glass reliefs of the young prince. Well, there's one easy explanation for his presence. John Evans was Prince Edward. 
The theory has recently been blowing up on social media with good reason. When you look at the images from that church, it feels like you're in the Da Vinci Code. It's another theory that could be proven with DNA testing, but has a major wrench in it, because the one thing you won't find at the church is John Evans. The tomb is empty. The research team hopes to find his remains somewhere else on the premises, but until they do, the princes in the tower are either still missing or in that urn in Westminster Abbey. And even though we have the tools to answer at least half this question, our team can't say we ever will. Whatever actually happened to the princes was covered up by the royal family, and they have a vested interest in keeping it that way. Based on the rules of royal succession, Edward V and his descendants should have taken the throne after Richard III died, not Henry Tudor and Edward's nephews. Instead, the Tudor dynasty ruled England for the next 100 years. Under their watch, the country became a major power in Europe, split with the Catholic Church, and launched its first forays into imperialism. Their descendants include Queen Elizabeth II, who refused to test the official remains, and King Charles III, who isn't making it a priority. And here's why we think they've been brushing it off. If John Evans were revealed as Prince Edward, we wonder if his modern-day descendants would challenge the current monarchy. Though it's unlikely their claim would be recognized, and they'd have to fight their distant cousins for it. Essentially, they could restart the Wars of the Roses. Though instead of armies duking it out, it'd probably be lawyers fighting for billions in assets. With the UK governed by Parliament, the new Wars of the Roses would look more like a family inheritance squabble. It's not something we can imagine King Charles signing up for. And that speaks to the heart of this story. It's a narrative controlled by the people in power. History is written by the victors. And in this case, it's left unwritten. So, until someone new takes over, the fate of the two princes will remain one of medieval England's greatest mysteries. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast. As you might have noticed, we've made some changes to bring a fresh perspective to the show, and there will be more coming. I do want to take a moment to acknowledge my longtime co-host and friend, Molly Brandenburg, who will no longer be joining me. I am truly grateful for her invaluable contributions over the years. Together, we built an extensive library of episodes for you to enjoy anytime, anywhere. Finally, you may not know this, but Conspiracy Theories is a collaborative effort with a dedicated team of researchers and writers who tirelessly craft compelling stories for you every week. Moving forward, you can expect to hear from our talented staff as they move from behind the scenes and join the show. I hope you're as excited as we are for this thrilling new chapter. Stay tuned for more updates and thank you for your continued support. 
Among the many sources we used, we found The Princes in the Tower by Alison Weir, The Survival of the Princes in the Tower by Matthew Lewis, and The Mythology of the Princes in the Tower by John Ashdown Hill, extremely helpful to our research. Do you have a personal relationship to the stories we tell? Send a short audio recording telling your story to conspiracystories at spotify.com. Until next time, remember, the truth isn't always the best story, and the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify podcast. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Andrew Kelleher, edited by Wendelance Brozo, Lori Marinelli, and Maggie Admire. Fact-checked by Haley Milliken and Lori Siegel, researched by Sapphire Williams, and sound designed by Alex Button. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau, our head of production is Nick Johnson, and Spencer Howard is our post-production supervisor. I'm your host, Carter Roy.